In this episode of the Crumpled Papers podcast, I am joined by spiritual director, therapist, and author Chuck DeGroat to talk all about narcissism, including its defining traits and characteristics, as well as ways both churches and individuals can heal from and prevent abuse from narcissistic leaders. The conversation in this episode is inspired by the topics and themes of my book, A Jumble of Crumpled Papers. If you enjoy today's conversation and haven't read the book, the link to pick it up is in the description below. If you're a first time listener, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to our intro episode, episode zero, to get brought up to speed on what this podcast is all about. But without further ado, enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Crumpled Papers podcast. My name is Austin Noll, and joining me on this episode is a very special guest. I have Chuck DeGroat, who is several different things. You are a therapist, you are a professor, you are a, an author, which is why you're here to talk about your book today. Would you mind, very quickly, first off, thank you for coming on. It's great to talk to you, Chuck. <laughs> yeah. Would you mind briefly sharing a bit about what you do and the th- different tenets of, of kind of who you are. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I wear too many hats probably, but, um, I, I've been in, well, I was in pastoral ministry in Orlando and San Francisco, uh, quite a while ago, I started doing church planter assessments and was in the church planting world training and assessing and so forth. Uh, for the last 10 years, I've been a seminary prof, which allows me to do a lot of that good stuff and more. Uh, so I'm I'm a therapist. I, I've done a lot of consulting, some investigating in church abuse situations, uh, training, and I probably at the, uh, the 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 thing I haven't said that uh, obviously we're here about is I'm a writer too. Mm-hmm. And so you know we're here to talk about narcissism in the church. Uh, and sometimes I just want to crawl under my bed. It's like. Uh, <laughs> goodness, do we have to talk about this subject? But here we are. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why you're on. You've written several books. But the book you're here to talk about today is When Narcissism Comes to Church. And the subtitle is Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. I read this book a couple months ago after being out, after leaving my childhood church of 18 years. Uh, I was out for about Mm. three years at that point, maybe three and a half years. And I read this book and it outlined, because I mean, this, the stages of leaving, right? First, you're reconciling with your experiences. Then you're trying to make sense of them. And usually, for me at least, the first thing was coming to terms with, oh, that was spiritual abuse. It's like, wow, a lot of those mm. things was abuse, which was a hard to wrap your head around, right? Yeah. And then the next layer of that is kind of discovering the roots of those different tenets. And one of those is narcissism, which, which I didn't know that much about. I always viewed the narcissistic guy as the egotistical guy, which is not untrue, but it was a one-layered, one-dimensional person of the guy who loves the stage, the guy who loves himself, and that was it. And I didn't tie it into how prevalent and present it is in churches, of, of course, first of all, and how prevalent it is in being a root of spiritual abuse for people and damage. Yeah. So first off, it's a fantastic book. I would love if we could start off by let, let's start off by, you've given a general overview of yourself a little bit. Would you mind delving into a bit of your church and faith journey and maybe how that inspired and brought up the need to write such a book? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, so I've been in and around the church my whole life and uh, in, in, in some hard situations too, even going back to my childhood. But 
I think I'd, I'd have to be honest, the conversation began with me and my own stuff mm-hmm. being exposed in seminary back in the mid-1990s and a very courageous counseling professor calling me on my own arrogance um, mm-hmm. and my own intellectual elitism and all sorts of stuff related to that, which uh, had an impact on other people, which I came to see. Yeah. And that piece yeah. of it was really humbling, humiliating, um, challenging to hear. And that led me on my own counseling journey, it led me into a master's program in counseling too, where I got even more feedback uh, <laughs> that was hard and honest. And, yeah. and it, it's led me actually to a question that I, I think pops up in the book at some point, but at least that I share often is, how important it is for each of us as leaders to ask, how do you experience me? Hmm. But um, I went on a journey to better understanding myself, understanding how people experience me. And then, of course, in the church, uh, when I first started serving as a pastor, particularly in a more hierarchical tradition and context, I started hearing stories. And those Hmm. stories were disruptive, disturbing. And as a young pastor, I didn't have a category for that. I didn't know what to do with some of that. Um, quickly learned that there there were leaders involved, but there were also covers up uh, cover ups of, of leaders. And this is goes back to like late '90s, early 2000s, mm-hmm. right? We're not talking about mm-hmm. this on Twitter yeah. at the time. And so, I did a crash course in um, I, I picked up every book on psychological abuse, emotional abuse that I could find, and and there began my mm-hmm. study in earnest of emotional, psychological, spiritual abuse. Yeah. Wow. So that's that's very interesting. I was very curious because usually with these kind of books, it comes from personal experience. The passion doesn't come unless you've lived yeah. it because then you realize the effect, right? So I was very curious to see what what direction you came from. So that's very interesting to know. Of course, what I didn't say is as I learned about these things, it led to a rub with my senior pastor and it <laughs> led me to getting fired from the first church that I was at. Wow. Um, yeah. Deeply, deeply painful. So I've been fired a couple of times. <laughs> in context where where this has become a rub yeah. um, and you quickly realize in this work that if you're going to advocate particularly for victims of abuse there there's often a cost yeah and that in and of itself is a whole conversation in mm-hmm. how it's unsurprising it's shocking yet it's unsurprising unfortunately in a lot of the terrain and context in these situations which says a lot about the way we're approaching i think a lot of spiritual structures in churches. Um, that's a whole different thing. That's so important to talk about too. So, okay. So for this conversation, this book is like a crash course. You mentioned that word crash course in narcissism and in the roots, in the tenets, in the so many things, the effect and the damage and ways to help prevent it and ways to discern it. I want to give you a chance and ask some questions here to kind of give us a, a, what is the word? Like, like a, a, like a one-on-one course on what this book offers, because Understanding narcissism, at least for me, allowed me to acknowledge and discern such a more specific aspect of my experiences looking at them and trying to to process them and being able to define the specifics of reasons why you experienced abuse or helping you acknowledge to protect yourself from future experiences is everything. It's everything right. in healing right. and in prevention. Yeah. So with that being said, I want to ask you the first question I have about this book here. And the first one is, what are some of the defining characteristics of a narcissistic pastor? We have in our mind the general ones, but I want to give you a chance just to say what, you, what your thoughts are on that. 
Yeah, well, just to take a step back, yeah. I mean, when we talk about narcissism, right, um, sort of the definition from the psychological community gets at things like grandiosity, mm -hmm. um, attention seeking, yeah. you know, approval seeking, entitlement, uh, a lack of empathy, and, and those things are certainly there. But that can lead to a kind of narrow definition mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, the onstage personality narcissist, right? And I think what ends up being helpful is, well, there, there are some would say there are really two faces to narcissism. There, there's more of a grandiose onstage narcissism. Mm -hmm. And then there's more of sort of a covert, yeah. kind of mealy, you know, passive aggressive narcissism. And actually, what, what I try to do is I try to, to show uh, nine faces mm -hmm. of narcissism. And really, in, in some ways, those nine faces of narcissism, which uh, I, I sort of, that was my experimental kind of work with the Enneagram and, and looking at this through the lens of the Enneagram, mm -hmm. you get at some of the characteristics of narcissistic leaders. And so it might be a kind of perfectionism. It might be a kind of a benevolent, bless your heart narcissism yeah. it might be a kind of success driven enneagram yeah. three-ish yeah. looking narcissism or a brooding self-pitying narcissism um it looks like intellectual superiority at times mm -hmm. and a demand for loyalty at other times sometimes it's the idealistic visionary who yeah. leaves everyone in the dust and at other times it's the power broker and then still finally at other times it really is that more conflict avoidant passive aggressive yeah. A person who manip really manipulates through passivity. Mm -hmm. And so what's helpful about that, I, I remember a book that goes back like 20 years ago that I used to give women who are being emotionally abused called Why Does He Do That? Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the author of that book presented like, I think it was like six different faces of emotional abuse. And it was so helpful for people to say, oh, so it's not it's not only the grandiose narcissist, mm -hmm. the person on stage that looks and dresses the part it's actually that, you know, that elder in my church in this really tiny little church yeah. who wields a lot of power, but not in a flashy kind of way. And I never knew that. And so, and I think part of that, maybe we'll get to this, is you feel less crazy when you when you start to identify how you experience it. That's so, so true. And that's, in many ways, one of the main purposes of my podcast is, is helping people understand these things. So they realize they're not crazy and therefore it fills in a lot of blanks for them, right? Yes. And I'm glad you touched on those different tenets. I love in the book, you spend a, a chapter or I think it's one big chapter going through the nine different types of narcissist personalities based on the anagrams. And on top of that, what you did that was really unique was, I mean, a, a, on top of connecting these two enneagram types is that you also divided them into three subcategories. And these three different triads is what you call them. You call them triads mm -hmm. are each based on what you call the, what the primary energy center is, which in other words, you say means what core wound is influencing the narcissism that someone is, is posing and therefore how that narcissism is reflected because they're all reflected in different ways by different external characteristics and behaviors. So as you wrote it, these three different triads, these subcategories are heart types, head types, and gut slash body types. And it's really interesting you say that the three and each one of these three categories has three of the nine faces in them of narcissism. And you wrote that the heart types are primarily shame-based, where the root of 
the narcissism comes as a defense to shame. The head types are primarily anxiety-based. And then the gut slash body types are primarily anger-based. And you referenced um, Thomas Keating and how his work explained that as a result of our childhood wounds, we seek to meet our needs through the pathways of either esteem and affection, which is the heart types, security and survival, which is head types, and power and control, which are gut and body types. And those are all the things that that narcissism is trying to achieve, right? Trying to achieve esteem and affection, trying to achieve security and survival, trying to achieve power and control. Really, really interesting. But like the, the connection to Enneagrams as a whole, was that an original idea? Was that a thing you came up with originally? The Enneagram as it relates to Just the relation between those two, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I, I should say that uh, there are a lot of people have been writing on the Enneagram for, oh, sure. for decades. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, it's all the rage nowadays. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. going back going back to the late 90s or so, uh, Ross Hudson and Don Riso, Don Richard Riso wrote a book where they talked about the levels of development mm. within each type. And they talk about nine levels of development, which is interesting, another nine. Yeah. But like, so for me, even going back a long, long time ago, as they talked about psychopathology for each and every narcissistic or Enneagram type, yeah. I began yeah. to see like, oh, there's a strain of narcissism in each of these. So I, I don't want to take all the credit. Yeah. I mean, I, I part of it was Don Richard Riso and Ross Hudson's work. Part of it was reading some Claudio Naranjo and understanding better his understanding of narcissism. And so... Yeah, but it was my, I even say at the beginning, hey, blame me if this is, uh, <laughs> if this isn't helpful, I own it. <laughs> yeah, I love taking full ownership, but I think it's really, really, it's yeah. it's cool. It's a great way, especially as Enneagrams become a more, just a more talked about thing is making those yeah. connections with people who, like I wasn't as in tune with Enneagrams. I've had a couple conversations. I know what I am, but people who are really into it will immediately relate and go, oh, I understand those connections there. It's interesting. Yeah. So I'm going to take a time out real quick from the conversation with Chuck. This is Austin from the future. And after the conversation, I was looking through Chuck's book. And in the chapter about the characteristics of the narcissistic pastor, he outlined 10 main attributes, main traits that I wanted to take a bit to go through for you guys because... I found them super, super useful and valuable information, and I know you guys will too. Because I believe most of these things, if you've dealt with a narcissistic leader or person in general, you've experienced one or all of these traits individually in your personal experiences. So the main characteristics, um, more so in the ways they operate and the external behaviors include the following. The first and perhaps one of the, like the most the cliche what you would think of is that all decision making centers on them, right? A narcissistic pastor or a leader of any kind or person of any kind, but in this case a pastor feels like they are a necessity for every decision that happens in the church. They want to be involved and have oversight or authority in every decision, whether it's a church-wide organizational decision or a, a interpersonal an advice or guidance or decision made to somebody specific, right? And I have countless experiences with the overstep that often happens because 
someone believes that they are entitled to be a necessity in a decision-making process that really may not even concern them at all. So the first one is all decision-making centers on them. The second behavioral characteristic is impatience or a lack of ability to listen to others, which makes sense. It's that chronic idea that they have that everything happening is too slow for them or not quite right for them because someone else is making the decision for them. It's not the right decision, not the way it should be going, or it should have been done already, right? So they're impatient all the time with people because whatever is happening isn't being done by them. And to tie it in with the first one, want to be the center of all decisions, when they're not, the people around them just can't hold up to the scrutiny that they're putting them under because they're not them. And if these people are not the pastor, they're just not good enough. The third one is, is interesting. It's delegating without giving proper authority or with too many limits. And this usually pertains to giving those around you roles and duties and responsibilities that are either really ambiguous or not thought out well or have way too many strict limitations because narcissistic pastors have very little ability to empower others in meaningful ways because it's all about them. They haven't thought about the other person and they haven't thought through intentionally from the other person's perspective or through that lens of where they need to be and what they need to do that would be helpful to them and those around them. They have, their thought process doesn't go that far, right? It's centered really around the orb around themselves. So the further you get from the center point, which is them, the more ambiguous and less defined it becomes, which is really detrimental to those around them. The fourth one is pretty self-explanatory, and it is feelings of entitlement, right? I mean, people who wouldn't be classified as narcissistic still often deal with feelings of entitlement, right? We feel entitled to a lot of things. And it makes sense for a narcissistic leader, especially in a church, to feel entitled to certain things. And what's interesting about this one is that under the guise of spirituality, they can often feel entitled to these things directly from God or because they believe God favors them above others, right? To an extent that, oh, his blessings are coming to me because I earned that or I deserve that or he loves me more or he has blessed me or this church, right? So we're going to get the money. We're going to get the building. We're going to get the outreach. We're going to get whatever else. And that's a natural progression. And of course, what that inevitably causes is when they don't get the things they feel entitled to, they shut down, melt down, have outbursts, depending on their, character, you know, their, their, their personality type and what kind of narcissism they kind of fall under. They can respond to that in very different ways, all of which are unhealthy and not productive and not helpful to those around them or their, you know, their congregations or their churches. The fifth one is really interesting too and very prevalent. It's Feeling threatened or intimidated by other talented staff. This one is self-explanatory. When others show promise or show people show affection for them or approval that rivals their own or even doesn't, but in their minds might rival their own, they get jealous, they react and they push back against it in usually unhealthy ways or very, what I've noticed is it's very immature ways that don't suit their age or their status or their role. Actions that are just like, so clearly childish actions based directly out of that feeling of threat or inferiority or rivalry. And the next one goes right into this. It's the need to be the best and brightest in the room. Same thing, 
But that I think is the, the default stance that feeling threatened or intimidated comes out of, right? It's needing to be the best, needing to be the most gifted, the best with people, the most liked, the most approved. And that can show itself in, I mean, so much of the performance side, especially of a leader or a pastor. It's having the performance showing off and, and showing in general. Not to mention having the feeling that they have to have an answer for every question, which is such a dangerous road, especially in a spiritual environment where someone asks you a question that you may not really know the answer to, but you give them a definitive answer to sound like and give the impression that you know everything, which will lead people down so many damaging paths because what was told to them, either as fact or even as advice, was just wrong and not helpful and not true. The seventh characteristic is actually kind of two, but you put them together because you said they almost always seem to operate together, and that is inconsistency and impulsiveness. And what you say here is that in many cases, narcissistic pastors have a tendency to be constantly driven to do the next big, best, great thing. And that could be projects or fundraisers or missions or events or books or whatever. And tied in with that, that, that constant drive to present the next thing is a lack of ability to see things through, which often drives people around them insane because they're constantly being introduced to new things while at the same time reeling from trying to fulfill the desires that the pastor has already given them for past projects that he's already forgotten about and onto the next thing. The next characteristic is very interesting to me, and I've seen this personally in my own interactions with leaders and pastors. It's the dynamic of praising and withdrawing. And I'm sure many people listening have had experiences with pastors, leaders, higher-ups, people, people quote-unquote above you in a church ecosystem, having this dynamic with you. And it's basically praising you when you do something that gets you on their good side or something they approve of. And then withdrawing and completely cutting you out without actually telling you you're being cut out of their good graces, of their attention, of their support, of their eye contact, whatever. Not only when you do something against what they want, but just questioning or not being an easy yes to whatever they desire. I think love bombing can can fall under this in a way where there's this huge surge of positive reinforcement when someone willingly and easily follows the tide that a narcissistic leader or person in general wants you to follow, right? But as soon as you are anything less than just a completely compliant individual in whatever they want you to be a part in, they ignore you, they are cold to you, they are, once again, that word immature, it's like they don't know you at all, where days before, weeks before, you could have been best buddies because you were, quote-unquote, in tune with each other, right? You were going along with what they wanted you for. So the second to last one is kind of an umbrella that oversees and encapsulates and is the undercurrent of many of the other characteristics, and that is a general intimidation of others, right? Either through their huge, bombastic, in-your-face presence, or the opposite of the very quiet, timid, yet 
intimidating presence. There is a a raising of their own persona and a lowering and depletion of those around them, right? So people just naturally feel intimidated and inferior around them, whether they're a big persona or not. And in many cases I've experienced, the narcissistic individual is not some huge like, you know, you think megachurch pastor kind of persona. They're not like that. They're in many ways just a normal person. Someone on the street would say just a normal person, but in their interpersonal relations with people, they're constantly intimidating people because of the way they interact with them. And finally, the last characteristic of a narcissistic pastor is a phrase that you coined, which I love, and that is phonerability, which for the listeners is spelled F-A-U-X. N-E-R-A-B-I-L-I-T-Y. Phonerability. Fake vulnerability. And this is so prevalent, especially nowadays, with spiritual leaders in many contexts. And that is the inauthentic presentation of being vulnerable. When in reality, it's either a complete facade or distracting from a deeper issue. And I think a huge example of this is when there's some kind of church scandal, right? Big or small scale, where the the leader in the spotlight comes out with a huge apology, you know, saying, hey, I'm not perfect. I did this mistake. I did this, whatever, whatever. And the problem is, I think in a lot of these contexts, there's a default of many congregations to side so easily with their pastors, even when they've done something wrong. So just the slightest sign of vulnerability and authenticity and transparency is enough to have them side with you, which I think a lot of pastors take advantage of because they know that not much is needed to have people side with them. And you note in here some different elements of vulnerability. People who are vulnerable have a lot of contradictions. They're not consistent in their character. A lot of the things that they're vulnerable about, just so ironically, happen to be things in the past, not things in the present, because they're all things that are no longer something that is a present force. So it's a lot easier to say, oh, I used to deal with this. Oh, I did this in the past. And it's such an easy way out, right? And another huge one, especially in the era of social media and internet presence and just presence in general, is staged vulnerability, where there is a staged moment of emotion, or someone cries during a song, or the pastor is doing a lesson, and he cries, and just shows that soft side, but it's really all just a display, right? We've seen that a lot with people, and they're not being authentic. You also say the vulnerable pastor often has a victim mentality. They usually show a lack of curiosity, because once again, it's all about them, right? People who are truly vulnerable are usually pretty curious about others. And people who are just fake vulnerable are usually more defensive and reactive, not curious. They also are prone to oversharing, which makes sense because to be authentically vulnerable takes effort and intentionality. And when it's not real, it's almost the mentality of more is better. The more things I can say that make me seem transparent and authentic and vulnerable, the more chances to get people on my side. 
So often people who are being fake vulnerable will just share a whole bunch of stuff all the time. That's usually just a big emotional dump on people just to try to manipulate their emotions towards them and their viewpoint of them. But anyway, those were the 10 characteristics that you listed in the book of narcissistic pastors. I want to take a moment just to to say all those because I think they're really important and really outline a lot of things that many, if not most, if not all of my listeners will be able to resonate with because they can pinpoint now the certain elements that they have had interactions with directly with people in their life who they would consider to be narcissistic. But that's all for me from Editor Austin. Back to the conversation. Here's a a big question for you. What do you see as some of the root inner causes of a narcissistic personality? Yeah, that's a another really good question. And in every everyone who I've worked with, and I think that psychology bears this out, we invariably see some kind of trauma. Mm-hmm. So in other words, um, narcissism doesn't appear in a vacuum. Narcissism is a protective defense mm-hmm. for someone mm-hmm. who is in a lot of pain. So this is where it can get tough for people because it's like, Chuck, it sounds like you have a heart for people who are narcissistic. Mm-hmm. And I want to say, yeah, I've been doing this work long enough to sat with enough men in particular yeah. to to kind of get a glimpse behind the curtain. And when you get behind the curtain, what you don't expect to see is profound anxiety, Hmm. um, inner emptiness, uh, searing shame. Uh, I mean, like the kind of searing shame that is sort of like, wow, you know, on on the face of it, you appear so confident and inspiring and put together. But now, as you take me behind the curtain, what I'm seeing is in some ways, you're just a little boy, a scared little boy. And, uh, you know, because because of that thing that happened to you or those things that happened to you, that home that you grew up in, or that, you know, the, the pain that you've experienced, you unconsciously put on this mask at a very early age, or you, you built this wall and you've been hiding behind it and throwing grenades from behind it Hmm. ever since. And so now I think most would say for those who are diagnosably narcissistic personality disorder, it's really hard to get there. Yeah, uh, you know, it's like their defenses are so high that, you know, when I do the work, uh, you know, I, I come with curiosity and empathy and all I get is a hand in my face. I'll just do it to your screen. Yeah. All I get is a, yeah. a hand in my face like, no, 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 I am not letting you in. Yeah. And I can tell this through your book. You do talk about how, how these I mean, narcissism, spiritual abuse, whether they coexist together or not in these different contexts. The people who wound people, okay, hurt people, hurt people is the common phrase, right? We know this, but when it becomes a cliche, you almost don't think about it as deeply as it is true, where these people, in my experience, my, I had, you know, youth leaders who weren't great, some church leaders who weren't great. Mm -hmm. They're just people. And I say that every episode, it's these people and acknowledging that allows you to be more authentic and honest in discussing the problems that they're posing sometimes. It's there's people yeah. that were hurt and dealing with their stuff and these different systems and structures and personalities are erected out of that um as as mechanisms, right? Yeah. And it's so important to recognize that because then it, they don't become the enemy where they may be causing a problem in your life and they need to be worked through but they're not the enemy. Yeah. And you know even with that said 
you know, you probably, I, I know I've over the years sat with many, many people who are uh, victims of abuse and harm of all different kinds. And I've, I've experienced it myself. And when you're in a place where you are reckoning with the harm you've experienced, it feels like you're dealing with an enemy. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, some, some of some of these, and, and I'm using, I'm, I'm saying men, I mean, yeah. there are women who are narcissistic, but by and large within the co- context mm-hmm. of the church, because men have had power historically, we see this in many men. Yeah. Um, there are some who are sinister. I mean, and it feels mm-hmm. like it. sitting with them makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. I mean, I have felt physically in danger as wow. I've sat with some of them, right? I mean, I've wondered if they were going to find me, come to my home. And so it can feel like you're dealing with an enemy. But as I'm sitting with, and this may sound strange, but as I'm sitting with these men, yeah. I imagine a little like, a crying little boy inside them, you know, because I know that even, even if I don't get access to that little guy inside, I'm standing before a man who looks confident and yeah. competent and put together, but is desperately afraid. And and that's just a strange puzzling dynamic. Yeah. I don't ask any of my uh, clients to have empathy for, you know, narcissistic abusers. Um, if they can find their way there, if they find their way, a path toward forgiveness or restoration through a slow journey toward that, I will celebrate that, but that will be, that will never be something that I demand. Hmm. Yeah. Very well said. I, I relate a lot to, uh, you, you mentioned a lot of that in your book and it's really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. That was a big question of the root inner causes. Another one is, this is how it relates to, because narcissism is not a, a spiritual word. It's not a church contextual word. It, it happens to be related a lot. And the question I have for you is this, why do you think it is that so many churches and spiritual communities are such prime targets and hotbeds for narcissistic personalities? Yeah, well, so th- that's a really good question. That's, uh, But I think in some ways, that's a really old question too. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that's where I mean that you go back to Genesis chapter three, right? And but but look at the long history of um, the kings of Israel. Yeah, uh, look at the long history of the church. Look at the marriage of the church and the empire uh, in in the days of Constantine and and beyond, right? And and how uh, we were very happy to become the power brokers. How yeah. we we're very happy to gain access to the. Uh, the coffers and the financial resources, how are you very happy to access and gain access to power? Yeah. And and you'll get a bit of a, of a sense of how averse we are to a cruciform gospel, a gospel mm-hmm. of, of Jesus, a gospel of, of the cross, the gospel of the one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, yeah. but became nothing, right? I mean, we are, we call ourselves disciples of Jesus, but uh, we are in some ways, very averse to following the way of Jesus, uh, because we don't like the way of suffering and death. And so, and I will, I'll put myself at the top of that list. You know, I'd I'd like to talk about that, but I'd like to have some successes along the way too. I hope I do well. I hope I don't suffer, you know, (laughs) Um, and I, you know, sometimes avoid it too. And so this is, this is where we have to be really honest with ourselves. We have to be honest about the structures of our churches. We've mm-hmm. got to be honest about how our even our our networks and our denominations are are married to um, a kind of imagination that's born yeah. out of power, success, relevance, um, authority, authoritarianism, yeah. a winning, 
<laughs> uh, succeeding, dominating, conquering, yeah. you know, um, we get into very uncomfortable questions that uh, get to the core of some of the deep sins of, of Christians over the years and, and mass, you know, the, as a collective. And so uh, I just said a lot in about three minutes there. I didn't yeah. get that. The- He's out. You know, I feel like I pretty much just offended everyone listening. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's yeah. so, it's so true. I think the last part you said there about all these different things that we're trying to, we're winning and doing these things and, and, and obtaining this power and, and whatever else my thought was for each of those, it's a lot of the times it's pronounced either it's believed or it's not, it's just pronounced. But often I think it's authentically believed as, oh, it's winning for God. Oh, it's this for God. Oh, it's this for God, which it may or may not be. I don't know. But when God is the charge, it can oftentimes ignite the fire to pursue a lot of high ideal things, which may not always be what he wants, but a church may feel like that's their mission to obtain sometimes, whether it's the preacher or the leader pastor wanting that or the people wanting that or a unified goal. But that was just the thought I had about that, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's really interesting. And one more thought I had, I think because. I'm so in the world of the younger generation in church, millennial, Gen Z, whatever comes after that. I've, you know, I'm more immersed in the stories and experiences of people in the more contemporary, modern, younger side of churches. A big thing that I think is a reason why narcissism is so prevalent in so many of these younger contemporary churches is because it's attractive. We have a culture of right celebrity pastors, this whole thing, because young people are attracted to, first off, attractive people, but that is not just a physical trait. Usually, as we see, it's someone who's attractive physically, usually, but also someone who's confident someone who makes the people around them feel important and confident, someone who has goals, someone who's outspoken about them, someone who is really larger than life in their aspirations and their motivation and their hype even, if that's, you know, to use that word. But many, many times the person on stage there is a facade. It's a, pre- it's a, it's a presentation. It's a persona put on, right, a celebrity mask put on to gain attraction and gain followers, right? Not just in social media terms, but actually in church terms, followers, right? And, you know, without knowing personally any of these people, I can confidently estimate that, you know, the vast majority, maybe 90, 95% of these larger than life celebrity pastors suffer from narcissism. I can, just because you can see the fruit of their efforts and young people for the most part, don't have the experience to realize the warning signs. And they many times compromise sound doctrine or safety or trust or healthy church structure and environment for unity, right? Feeling unified with a lot of people and also feeling like they're in the whatever is it right now. And right now, Contemporary churches with an attractive, narcissistic, oftentimes, larger-than-life pastor is it for younger generations. So, right, once again, we're kind of just asking for it because we don't know any better. 
I want to talk a little bit about the the victim side of narcissism. Yeah. Obviously, narcissism can be a very it, it can be a root of some very destructive uh dynamics. Yeah. What are in your experience with victims or with with um perpetrators? What are some of the side effects both on individuals and on spiritual communities as a whole of being led or influenced by narcissistic leaders? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think first of all on a collective level, I often talk about the debris field that that a narcissist mm-hmm. leaves behind. I mean, the chaos, the sort of shattering of shalom, the shattering of goodness that a narcissist leaves behind in systems yeah. and in families and relationships, you know, that is immensely painful. But but on a very personal level, we we experience that. And I and I think, you know, a, a narcissism traumatizes a person, right? Which is to say trauma is the Greek for wound. Hmm. It leaves a, a deep wound. It leaves a a deep wound in one sense of self. Um, I I don't know anyone who has experienced narcissistic abuse who doesn't doubt themselves at some core level, mm. doesn't wonder, was it my fault? Did I do something wrong? Um, was I responsible? Yeah. Did I choose this? Um, am I making this up? Those kinds of questions. So those really, really big questions, and that's part of the, the gaslighting that happens, that sort of crazy-making dynamic of, is it my fault? Did I do something wrong? Yeah. But, you know, I think with... I, I named nine-ish kinds of faces of narcissism, and and those you know, those things they show up in different ways, right? So when when someone is impacted by a bully, it's different than working with. I, I recently uh, worked with someone who, uh, in my therapeutic practice, who served under a narcissistic pastor for about ten years, mm. and it wasn't that kind of bullying narcissism. It was like a slow trickle, mm. passive aggressive you don't know what you're talking about. You're just a woman. Hmm. You should doubt yourself. And she, you know, she, over the years, she began as this kind of radiant, hopeful Christian. And over the years, lost a sense of hope, lost a sense of identity, lost a sense of self, but, but always sort of kept this, this person on a pedestal because it's sort of like, he's the spiritual authority. He's got the master of divinity. He's got the role he's on stage. And so by the time she came to me, it's really hard to describe, but I mean, I'm seeing pictures of people coming out of Israel and Gaza and and the pain, the trauma that people experience, you know, the kind of trauma of like wartime trauma when you've just lost heart. Mm-hmm. And that's what ends up happening, I think, at worst is, is a sense that you're pummeled over and over and over again, and you just lose heart. You wonder if any of it's true, yeah. if you can trust God let alone any kind of spiritual authority. And, and to be honest, a lot of these folks, and, and I, I suspect given your work and your podcast and the people that you talk to and the guests you have on and your listeners, like, you know, we're talking a lot about deconstruction nowadays as if it's this really naughty word, you know, that yeah. people ask questions. But, you know, like when when you've been pummeled, you ask really big questions about Absolutely. God, about, church, about your theology, about you know, the kind of toxic theology that you, you'd been in over the years that was used against you. And, um, you know, there's not a fast recovery from that. Like it's not weeks, it's not months, it's years of recovery. And I never put a timeline. And so, 
I can't express the depth of destruction yeah. that narcissistic abuse does to body and soul. Um, body in the sense of the autonomic nervous system ravaged, yeah. you know, for days, weeks, months, years. And and uh, I can say more about it, but hopefully that that makes some sense. Oh, that makes so much sense. And it's so true. I think you were talking about it affects trust of leaders and other people. It affects trust of God. And it really affects trust in yourself. You're talking about gaslighting. And it's always yeah. with a narcissistic person, whatever method they're usually using, most of the time, it ends up being a dynamic of, I know what I'm doing, you don't. I'm a higher position, you're not. I'm more valid, you're not, whatever. And so you coming out of that, even when you're in it and haven't come to terms with it, or you have and you're in it or whatever, whatever spectrum you're on of coming to terms with what you're experiencing, it's depletion of your trust in all those facets, in God, and other people, and in yourself. And yeah. those all take so much time to recover from, but yourself especially if you can't trust yourself because that mm -hmm. needs to be the starting point to trust God to trust others. You need to know yourself first. And if you don't, that is so important yeah. to get that foundational yeah. starting point. So that's huge. Can I just give a quick story, like a personal oh, story? Oh, absolutely. Literally yesterday, I have a 40 minute drive into the seminary, had a couple of things going on. There was a particular uh, challenging personal situation that I went to um, uh, pretty quickly to, um, there's something deeply wrong with you, Chuck, and you are profound disappointment. Mm. And that was that was occupying some space in my soul, if you know what I mean. Like yeah. driving in my car and I'm listening to an audiobook and I'm like, I have to pause and I have to listen within because I'm coming in. There's something going on inside of me and my my defenses were up and I I felt like I needed to protect mm. myself. And as I got down beneath the waterline into what was going on. It was like these really, really old scripts inside me. There's something deeply wrong with you. You're such a disappointment. And so I spent the next 30 minutes kind of working through that. Yeah. And teasing. Yeah. You, you disappoint people, but you're not a disappointment. Mm. There's nothing wrong with you at your core and reminding myself where some of those messages came from. But yeah. it, it's sort of like, I want to say that out loud because there are plenty of people listening, I'm sure, mm -hmm. who are like, well, you know, how quickly can I recover from this? And I've been on a journey for 25 years now. Yeah. Uh, my therapy began 25 years ago. And you can still get locked up in this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wrote the book for myself in some ways too, yeah. you know, to remind myself. And to actually remind myself of my own narcissism, yeah. my own tendency to self-protect, um, to defend, et cetera. Because we all, to whatever extent, we all have a bit of ourselves that goes to certain mechanics to defend ourselves. Yeah. 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 And that's not, by the way, that's not narcissism. That's, no. You know, we're, we're, I mean, defenses are good. Oh, I mean, right. Body, Absolutely. God designed us with nervous systems to protect yeah. us from harm for pain right but um i think when the defense the defensive self becomes the only self that we know yeah you know the only yeah. i mean when i think about someone who's diagnosably narcissistic that's the only self they know they can't yeah. imagine uh someone other than their armored up self right that's a problem yeah and so yeah. uh and so yeah we we're all you know, I, I think this is where it's so relatable because we're all aware of times where we've kind of, you know, gotten big and 
a punch back and uh, gotten defensive. And it's like, am I a narcissist? Yeah. Well, good, good for you for asking that question. You probably aren't. Right. But let's learn about you and your defenses and your resistance and why you protect yourself and where you feel threat and the safety that you long for, et cetera. Mm. It's like when those defenses become offenses almost. Yeah, that's in a, a certain good way, way of right? There's a, there's a line there where yeah. when, when my defense mechanisms, healthy defense mechanisms become an offensive measure against somebody, there's a line there that crosses that turns into damaging, Absolutely. right? Yeah. I got a few more questions for you here. Let's see. What, okay, this is also huge. I'm hitting the, the main tenets here. What are some ways that churches and their members, you talk about this in your book a little bit, uh, most of it is about is bringing it to this through line is what are some ways that churches and their members can better equip and protect themselves against narcissistic leaders and systems and ideologies? So, yeah, this is where it's hard, right? Because yeah. it's, given what I just shared a, a little bit ago, that it's, it's sort of in the water we drink, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. it's part and parcel of, of our larger culture and, and certainly um, embedded in our subcultures then it's not simply about how do we protect ourselves from hiring that narcissistic leader, right? Right. It's how are we, how do we need to become aware of what we're asking for in a leader? And how is that representative of the kind of culture that needs to win, that needs mm-hmm. to succeed? Like we want a leader that's going to take us to the next level. We want a leader that's going to grow us from, you know, 60 to 600. We want a leader yeah. that's going to start this ministry and that ministry that's going to reach the world with the gospel. You know, and I I want to say, well, you're practically setting someone up and it's so then you have to sort of interrogate yourself as a church and say, what does this say about us? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been a part of two major church planning networks and um, done a lot of work within them and a lot of assessment. And the whole thing is practically a setup yeah. for narcissistic leaders. And I used to I, I used to sort of raise my hand meekly and say particularly when I was younger yeah. and say, am I the only one that's a little <laughs> bit nervous about this guy, you know, uh-huh. and no, but he's already raised $250,000 and he's such an inspiring communicator. Well, actually when I sat behind closed do- doors with he and his wife, you know, his, his, his wife just felt to me a little bit nervous and a little mm. squirmy. And, and he kept looking at her with this kind of side eye, like, stop it, just stop it. Stop mm. being so, and Am I the only one that saw that? You know, yeah. and so you ask a really good question that is is by the way requiring us to ask uh, questions of of what we value in our networks, how we understand yeah. success, how we talk about the gospel. You know, <laughs> and the gospel in some sort of way that's detached from the cultures that we breed mm-hmm. within our churches. And the good news is that people are asking these questions like more and more as I'm connected to leaders of, of uh, church planting movements, they're rethinking these things. They're asking these deep questions. They're uh, they're in touch with some of these larger narratives of power. And, and they're saying, well, so how do we, how do we do this differently? And, and so that it's, it's not just about a psychological assessment of a right. church planter, right? It's about us interrogating our entire culture. Yeah. Uh, and I know that that, that feels like a lot to most people, sure. like, you know, um, we want simple answers. Like, isn't there, you know, isn't there one thing that we can do to implement this? Cause this is the kind of world we live in, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but I do think that we're facing a massive reckoning in the church right now. And these yeah. reckonings 
as hard as they are, really good for us. Uh, Phyllis Tickle said that every 500 years or so, there's this mm -hmm. massive rise sale. The last one was the Reformation. Here we are now like, in the midst of yet yeah. another one, right? Yep. And so let's let it disrupt us yeah. and learn from it, you know, and maybe lead maybe lead us to some humility and some reform in our churches. Because there can be a uh, a fear of that from a lot of people in in a change to the way things are, especially people who it benefits, right? Yeah. And there's a fear of having to shake things up and, and rethink some things and think differently about some things that have been in place for a long time, whether they're healthy things or unhealthy things. I'm talking about all together. And yeah, it can be really hard to face sometimes, but yeah, if, if, if gone through with the right intention and seeking God through it and not our own motivation, that's a simplistic way of saying it, but it's true, is the changes have a great opportunity to invoke some really good things. And take That's away right. some really damaging things. You know what I mean? But but such really, really, really true. Is there anything you would say to think in your mind of the people you've talked to, right? Is there anything you would say to a leader or pastor who may be engaging in narcissistic practices or mindsets, whether they are aware of it or not? What would you say to someone? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is I've had a number of pastors say, hey, I, I read your book and... Yeah. Um, I want to know if I'm a narcissist um, or I want to know how this impacts me or in, intersects with my life. So I, I don't have, by the way, like I, my, I don't have an app on my phone to detect if someone's a narcissist. <laughs> if only. Like yeah. And I'm just not that good at my job or that smart. I can't figure people out <laughs> just like that. You know, I mean, I think it takes time to tease out how we show up in relationships. Uh, uh, oftentimes, you thinking of several different situations where the yeah. public face of someone was seemed humble and kind and gentle and good mm -hmm. and but behind the scenes the way he led his staff the way he interacted with people who were sort of down the hierarchy so to speak you yeah. know the way he treated people who were you know not within the inner circle uh was harsh was cruel was uh passive aggressive was mm -hmm. um undermining was humiliating was shaming you know and yeah. and so i'll oftentimes invite them to do the hard work of asking people what is it like to work here how do you experience me now some will say well no i can't do that because i'm the i'm the boss and immediately that tells me something you know but others right. will say wow that sounds really hard mm -hmm. and i probably learn a lot about myself yeah. uh and could be kind of humiliating, but, and I, you know, I might give them a few other pointers about, you know, entering into a process like that, because I don't think you should just do it solo. I think mm -hmm. you should do that with some accountability from some other leadership or maybe an outside leader. I might ask them to, Hey, I want you to bring in, do you have, do you have someone in your denomination who you bring in it for some level of accountability around this, you know, or to protect you from you if, yeah. if you start to get kind of defensive, but I have seen pastors in particular and other leaders do that work and begin to learn things about themselves where they, it's hard, but they integrate it. Part of recovering from narcissism is metabolizing shame, is processing mm. the shame that we feel because narcissism is a defense against shame. And so, so it's sort of like, oh, that's hard. And I, I miss that. And I yeah. do treat people with a bit of contempt and I, I can be dismissive at times and process, process, metabolize digest yeah. all these hard things about myself and if you can do that and stay connected good things are going to happen yeah 
you're going to be, become more humble, more curious, more compassionate, um, more open. You might even begin to do weird things like put other people in charge and um, <laughs> give up certain things that, that you had power over. Defer you know, some not, things. Yeah. Defer some things, not need to micromanage, step away mm -hmm. from meetings. Um, wow. Okay. That kind of sounds like someone who's following the way of Jesus, actually. So it really does. It takes yeah. a lot of, and my thought was it takes a lot of humility to put yourself in a place where you're asking people to like introspectively talk about who they see you as, right? And how you affect yeah. them. And in healthy churches and places that are doing the right thing, like you, you, you don't, shouldn't have much to fear, but maybe still get some honest criticism because everyone's doing something wrong. Everyone's doing something because we're imperfect people. Yeah. And that's so yeah. important to know, like you're not looking for an A plus, you're looking for just an honest assessment to know where you're. Because if you know your heart, you know what you're doing well, you're trying to do well, but the things you may not be seeing is so valuable. And on the other side is, on the, the victim side, it's, we talked about bringing someone in, not doing it alone. The victim side is, man, let's say there's an abusive pastor who's narcissistic, who's damaged me, and they come to me asking, what do you see in me? Well, many people by that point are afraid to speak authentically because yeah. it hasn't worked out with them before. So having someone else there may also serve the pastor in a way to help, but it also serves the member because it allows yeah. them to be like, okay, you're honestly asking and there's, there's someone in the middle here. So I'm not taking the brunt of a potential backlash. Yeah. yeah. Which is huge. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You, you described that really well and the, and how precarious it is, yeah. you know, and, and I think equally as precarious is asking the question, how do you experience me in the first place? Because mm -hmm. I remember uh, when I first started asking that question, I thought, well, this is such a demonstration of what a good guy I am and how <laughs> healthy I am that I asked this question. And then you have someone come to you and say, as as one guy you know, came to my office one day and said, Chuck, you talk a lot about presence. You talk a lot about showing up. You talk a lot about um, being connected. Mm -hmm. Can I tell you how I experience you? Yes. Oh, sure. You can. <laughs> I experience you as distant, disconnected. Oh. Walk past. You walk past us at times. You know when when you're uh, when you're in the office, and I call out to you, and you don't really hear. It doesn't feel like you have time for us or to to really listen. Okay, there you go. Right. So yeah, uh, this is not just about asking the winning question. It, not at all. It's actually about being able to take some of that stuff and say, okay, so what does this say that's true about me? Now, there, there's always stuff that comes up that may be reflective of another person's baggage, mm -hmm. you know, but my first responsibility is to ask, what does this say about me? Not what does it say about their baggage? Right. That's so huge. All right. So my final question to you is a, is a question I ask every guest on the show. And it is this, this podcast and my book are all about our crumpled papers, which are the ideas or beliefs that we may have at one time believed with full certainty, but at some point realized we need to reevaluate our perspective on. So my question to you is, what is one or a few of the biggest or most important crumpled papers of your own that you've had to unlearn or get a new understanding of? Yeah, so I, I love that, by the way. That's such a beautiful picture. I do too. I've got some great responses from this question. Uh, um, so I have a number of crumpled papers. Um, the one, the one that I'll I'll say is uh, I grew up in a home with parents who found their way to faith pretty early on in my life. Um, started attending church, and my dad, in particular, found his way into a very kind of hyper reformed, mm. 
In fact, his favorite Bible verse was, there is no one righteous, no, not one. He would say that walking through our living room, there's no one righteous, no, not one. And the doctrine of total depravity, which is to say to me back in the day, you're as bad as bad can be. There's something desperately wrong for you. And you couple that with the psychological baggage that a, a kid internalizes in a home where there was some pain in my parents' marriage and stuff like that, and me blaming myself for that. And it was a pretty toxic recipe. Yeah. It turns out years later, I realized that uh, John Calvin didn't even believe that in that way, that we were as bad as bad can be. But that's beside the point. Mm. To begin to see that God's smile over me comes first, you know, that God mm -hmm. loves me, sees me, that goodness was whispered over me, um, that sin may occupy a space in my heart, but it's not me. Huge. Really big. And and a crumpled paper of a doctrine that you're as bad as bad can be that that I just I needed to toss. <laughs> Which yeah. so many people who have been at the hand of narcissistic people or who are portraying narcissistic personalities and dynamics comes from a core of that's a big element in that is understanding, no, we're good and God loves us and we are not that all is lost, too far gone mentality. Huge. Yeah, that's, yep, um, yep, yep. Man, Chuck, love your book. Love talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. It's going to provide so much valuable information that, of course, for the listener, you can find more of in the book, which I'll link down below. But so many important, useful pieces of information about narcissism, how to discern it, how to heal from it. Uh, so much stuff. Thank you for coming on. I love the conversation, Chuck. Yeah, thanks for all you do. Thanks for the, the work you're doing in the podcast and your writing, Austin. Good to see you. Of course. Guys, that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week for the next episode of season two. I will see you there. Until then, peace out. Thanks for hanging with us on this episode of the Crumpled Papers podcast. The episode may be over, but the conversation's just getting started. If you have any questions or comments, or just want to say hi, send us an email at crumpledpaperspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And make sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date with all things Crumpled Papers. All links are in the description. This is Austin, and I'll see you next time on the Crumpled Papers podcast.